So my name's Adam Tarno. Glad to be here. Don't cheer yet. I might be awful. You don't know. All right. So I, uh, I last was at launch 13 years ago. I got to speak at launch. Anybody at that one? <laughs> I, that may be a little discouraging, brother. I don't know. 13 years. So I don't know. It may be more discouraging that you were there. It took them 13 years to invite me back for me. So I don't know which one's more discouraging. But anyway, I'm excited to be here. So here's what I want to start off with is uh, anybody in the audience here today, any of you guys like car people? Like your motorhead, you know how to fix cars, you like cars, all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. There's about nine of you in here, so I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling good then. I am not a car person. There are a lot of things in this life that I know a lot about and that I'm really good at. For example, and this is a true statement, this is going to be shocking and I will back it up. I'm the best rock skipper I know. I mean, I think it's world class. I think I skip rocks better than JP beatboxes. All right, so... And I, I will prove it whenever you want to, all right? I'm the best rock skipper I know. I'm really good at that. Uh, I, I'm 42 years old, and I still have an incredibly nasty curveball. And so I've got that going for me. I'm a numbers guy. I like Excel. I journal in Excel if I could. So there's a lot of things, a lot of things I would do that I'm really good at. But one of the things that I just never learned growing up that I'm not good at is I do not understand cars. I don't understand how they work. My car, basically, it either turns on and works or it doesn't. And that, that's all I know. So I, I say that because whenever I do have a car issue, it's incredibly vulnerable for me. I mean, even, even taking the car in to get the oil changed or if something is broken where the car doesn't start and I take it into the mechanic, that becomes a very vulnerable situation for me because when that mechanic calls me when my car's not working, he could tell me anything is wrong with that car and I will believe him. I mean, I, I, could, I could have that phone call where I'm like, you know, answer the phone. He's like, hey, this is such and such at the, at the shop. And Adam, here's what's going on with your car. It needs a new flux capacitor. <laughs> and I would be like, really? It needs that? And he's like, yeah, and you're low on blinker fluid. And so I think, I think, we, need to, I think we need to fix both of those. And I would be like, okay, let, let's do that, you know. And, and I have no rebuttal to that because I don't know anything about cars. And so that just kind of sets up where a few years ago, I was taking my car in to get an oil change, and I had found this one spot to get the oil change, and I love taking it here. It's actually Walmart. I love taking my car to Walmart to get the oil change because there's never that shameful conversation where the technician comes out in the middle of the oil change and tries to upsell you on all of these things. Like, there's never that situation where they take the air filter and they show you, like, you got full leaves in there and twigs, and, and you know, you need to change the air filter. Some of you guys know what that's like. And so, so I, I take it in there to get this oil change, and I drop the car off, and I go sit in the lobby, and the technician, after about two or three minutes, I mean, I'm not even sitting down, and that technician comes into that lobby, and he's just got this look of dread on his face, like he just saw a ghost. And he said, do you drive that old Camry out there? I said, yeah, I do. He goes, you, you want an oil change? And I said, yeah, just, just an oil change. That's all I want. And he just looked at me, and he goes, I would change your oil, but there's one problem. There's no oil in the car to change. I don't know how you got here. There's no oil in that car. Again, I'm not a car guy, so I'm kind of reading his facial expression, and I'm kind of putting two and two together going, so you're telling me this is kind of a big deal, right, that, that I don't have oil in my car right now. And he goes, come here, here's what we need to do. And we walked into the little automotive section that was right there. He said, let's just get two quarts of oil, went over, paid for the oil. We went out, put it in the car, and I drove away. And I was like, I think I might have just dodged a bullet. So I decided to do some research on the Internet. And come to find out, it's actually a really big deal if your car runs out of oil. So he wasn't lying. He wasn't trying to upsell me. He was really trying to help me. And so I found this quote. This is what happens 
if your car runs out of oil. And I fully understand that for some of you, this may be the most valuable information you learn all weekend, okay? <laughs> and I'm okay with that. If this is all you get out of launch this year is make sure you always have oil in your car. I think this is a win. Listen to this quote, okay? So this is what happens if your car runs out of oil. The engine overheats and damage, such as pistons and rings, fusing to the cylinder walls and the engine block cracking. I had no clue that my car even had pistons and rings and cylinder walls. But all that kind of stuff happens in there. And so they will, they will fuse to the cylinder walls and the engine block will crack. That, that will occur. The cylinders will lose compression. Coolant will leak and the engine will likely need to be replaced. And so that's what happens. And which is fascinating to me if I think about it because there are so many parts in a car. So many parts in a car. And the engine alone has hundreds of parts but yet if this one thing is missing, if a little bit of oil is missing, then that sophisticated car, all the engineering that went into that car, if oil is missing, then that car will not be able to function as it was intended. And I start with that this morning because there is something else in our life that is exactly like our vehicles. There's something else in life that if one little ingredient is missing, then this thing in our life will not be able to function as it was intended. And that thing in our life that is like, a, like our vehicles is our relationships with one another. I'm going to say relationships a lot this morning. And when I say relationships, think about all of them in your life. They could be romantic relationships. They could be just friendships. They could be relationships at work, relationships with your coworkers, with your boss, with your family, with anybody. Any relationship, if a relationship is going to function as the Lord wants them to function, then there's an ingredient that is going to be needed because if this ingredient is not there, then your relationships are going to crumble. And that ingredient, that ingredient is humility. That ingredient is humility. In fact, what we're going to see is that if you and I, if we are not humble, if we are not humble, then our relationships will crumble. Just like oil is to a car, just like a car needs oil to be able to function properly, our relationships need humility in order to function properly. Now, that word humility can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, and so let me just define what I mean when I say humility. When I say humility, I'm not talking about low self-esteem. I'm not talking about just this low view of yourself. I'm not talking about false humility when somebody praises you or encourages you and you just go, oh, no, oh, no, it's not me, it's not me. Glory to God, glory to God for everything. That, that's not humility. Humility is not low self-esteem. Humility is low self-preoccupation. That's what humility is. You're just not obsessed with yourself all the time. And here's why humility is such a big deal and why this message is so important for us. Is we've been this weekend talking about the good life. Something that I know you guys know is true is that if you're going to have the good life, the good life is found when your relationships are healthy. That, that's really when the good life is, is found, when we all experience this. You guys know this to be true. If you did this, like if you went home today and you kind of mapped out the highs and lows of your life. So if take from the, the, the first memory that you have up until today and just write down, put little dots on a graph saying, here's a high point, here's a high point, here's a high point. I bet if all of us did that, there would be one thing in common with all the high points in our life. And the thing that we would all have in common is that the high points in our life probably didn't have as much to do with the amount of money we had, with the way our body looked, with where our romantic relationships were, where we were in our career, what zip code we were living in. I bet what we would all see is true about the high points in our life is that what is in common is that's when our relationships were the healthiest. 
and the low points, probably the exact same, same thing is true. For the low points in our life, it's not when our health was suffering. It's not when we didn't have enough money. It's not when our career seemed to be at a dead end. It's not when our romantic relationships were empty. What probably was true about the low points in our life is there was a lot of dysfunction in our relationships. And so this is incredibly important if we want the good life, is that we have got to be humble. Because if we are not humble, then our relationships are going to crumble. I think this morning is going to explain a lot to some of you in in this room tonight, or this morning. I think there's going to be a lot of dots connected. I think for some of you, you're going to, throughout this, as we look at what God's word says in, in the book of Philippians, I think there's going to be some lights that are coming on. You're going to have some aha moments. You're going to start to realize why your life seems to be one broken relationship after another. You're, you're going to start to realize why you seem to have a list of enemies that's longer than a list of friends and close companions. I think some of you are going to realize why you find it so difficult to be in relationships with people. Because here's what we know is true. If, if you're in a relationship with somebody who's not humble, there's just a ceiling on that relationship. It's impossible to have a strong and healthy relationship with somebody who is not humble. Because if it's not there, the relationship crumbles. So if you've got your Bibles, let's open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11, really famous passage, probably one that's very familiar to so many of you in this room this morning. And as we go through this, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that every young adult can have a healthy relationship by following this path towards humility that Paul lays out in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to highlight three things. There is so much that we could highlight in this passage. I just want to highlight three things. What we're going to see is that Paul is going to have a lot to say about the way we view uh, our relationship with other people and the way we view enemies. And so we're going to talk about uh, enemies. We're going to talk about how we need to increase the value that we place on other people. And we're going to see that our job description is really to serve other people as we go through this passage. So here we go. Let's jump in. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. Here's what he says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his, in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So what Paul says here in these first two verses is this, is he basically says in our relationships with one another, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, therefore in our relationships with one another, we need to be united. We need to make sure that we are united. And this is not a new theme or a new idea that Paul is introducing here in the book of Philippians. I mean, this is, this is talked about all throughout the, the, the New Testament. Paul mentions it again in the book of Romans in chapter 12. He talks about in chapter 12, verse 16, that we need to live in harmony with one another. And then a couple verses later in chapter 12, verse 18, he says, is it, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says this, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. And so Paul wants us to be united. This is the first way that we can move towards humility. So the first point that I want to draw out of this text for us this morning is this, is one of the ways that we're going to move towards humility, move in that path, is that we understand that we have one enemy. One enemy. And here's why I say one enemy and I don't say one team. All right? The reason I say one enemy and not one team is because it is so easy to give lip service to this idea of one team. I mean, that sounds cheesy. It kind of sounds like a hashtag 
And it is so easy to walk around and give lip service to this idea that, yeah, of course, one team. I love everybody. Everybody, we're all on the same team. We are all united. But the implications of what Paul is telling us in this text is so much more than just this idea of one team. What he's really saying is this. He's saying, you and I, as followers of Jesus, what that means is that we will only have one enemy in our life. One. And that's the enemy, Satan. Every other person we are open to having a relationship with. It's so easy to say one team. It is so hard to live out this idea of one enemy. And one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to live out this idea that we only have one enemy is because we're Americans. And we love to be outraged. We are experts. We are experts at spinning this narrative of our life that puts us at the center of some injustice or that we're victims of something. We're outraged about stuff all the time. In fact, the online news magazine Slate.com, what they observed about the American culture back in 2014, they declared that 2014 was the year of outrage in America. You can go to their website. They still have it up. What they did is they took every day of the year, they had a little box for all 365 days of that year. And if you go out and you hover over a box, what will pop up is is the story of what that day was making everybody in America angry. And it's fascinating to go through and read all of those things. I mean, nowadays, you are, it's not, you can't just have civil disagreement with people nowadays, if you don't agree with 100% of the way I think and the way I live, then you are an enemy. And we love it. And I, I wish I could tell you guys that I'm not tempted to have enemies. I'm, there's people that I'm tempted to think are my enemies. I, mean, I, I find it really difficult to be in a relationship with Houston Astro fans. <laughs> I'm sorry, brother. I mean, we'll work on it, but it's difficult. It's difficult. The lone Astros fan right over there in the jersey. All right, two. All right, there's two. I find it difficult to be in a relationship with people that call themselves a coffee snob just because they like Starbucks. Right? I, I, have, I have my temptations for enemies, and we, we, all, we all have it. But here's the deal. Here's what Paul's telling us. That if we're going to be humble, then we've got to understand that it is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ to view anyone as an enemy. Think about that. If there's anybody in your life that you're giving the silent treatment to, anybody in your life that you're saying, hey, the, whatever they've done to me, I, I no longer am considering that they are worthy of a relationship with me. If there's people that you just don't like being around or if you have this this list of people that you're saying, I am no longer in a relationship with you. If you have an enemy and you call yourself a Christian, that's really confusing. And I don't think you understand the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has freed us to now be reconciled with people and to view this life, to view this life and our relationships completely different. And it is so much easier to say we're on one team. It is difficult to live as one enemy. If we have enemies, you know what that is? That's pride. That's pride. Because what you're basically saying, if you have enemies, is that that person or that group of people, because they think different than me, they act different than me, they don't deserve a relationship with me, and that's pride. If you're humble, 
If you're humble, then you'll understand. You'll understand that because of the gospel, we can be in a relationship. We don't have enemies because if you're not humble, then your relationships are going to crumble. And here, here's why this makes total sense with what Paul is saying. Here's why this moves us on that path towards humility. You want to know why? Because if you're going to be in a relationship with people, in a healthy relationship with people, that means you can't just be focused on yourself all the time. If you're going to be in a healthy relationship with people, that means you have to listen to them. That means you have to consider their interests. That means you have to forgive them when they hurt you. That means you're going to have to admit that sometimes, often, you contribute to the dysfunction that's in that relationship. You're going to understand, if you want to be in a relationship with somebody, you're going to understand you are not nearly as great as your parents think you are. And you guys have seen this play out with some of your peers. Let me, let me just give you a little insight. Some of you have seen your friends. They've gone off. They've gotten married. You're at the wedding. It's this really happy day. It's exciting. Seems like this great love story. You talk to them six months later, a year later, and you ask them, hey, how's married life going? And, and they just look at you like that guy that was changing my oil looked at me. <laughs> like, hey, how's married life? And like, Man, it is hard. It is hard. And you don't want to know why it's hard? What that means is they're being humbled. That's what it means. Because it's hard to be in a healthy relationship. It's hard to admit to, to not just be totally preoccupied with yourself. It's hard to admit that you're wrong. It's hard to admit that you hurt people. It's hard to forgive people. And so what Paul is telling us here, Paul is telling us here makes total sense and the way it produces humility in our life. And so what he's telling us to do is to view the world that we have one enemy, the enemy. And so in the great words of the great theologian, Hamish Abernathy, as he told Katniss Everdeen before the 75th Hunger Games, <laughs> remember who the real enemy is. That's great advice for us. Remember who the real enemy is. It's not each other. It's the first one. Let's keep going. He's got more to say. He's got more to say. Verse 3. Do nothing. It's a very complete language right there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so the second point that I want to make today, the second way that we can move and this path towards humility is this, is that we increase the value you place on other people. Increase the value you place on other people. I've got really great news for you this morning. You already know how to do this. You already know how to do this. How many of y'all been to a wedding? Raise your hand. Been to a wedding. Most of you have been to a wedding. Okay, you know what happens in the wedding. Let's pretend like this is a wedding, and I'm up here, and I'm going to officiate over the wedding, and there is the groom, and there's all the bridesmaids over there, and all the groomsmen are over there, and then the door opens up, and the bride and her father walk down the aisle, what would you all do? You would all stand up and you'd turn and face her. And then as she walked past you, you'd do the slow thing to make sure that you're always <laughs> facing her. And you do that. Why do we do that? Do we do that because she's better than us? No. She's not better than you. When she gets back from the honeymoon, she's going to be in the cube next to you at the office again, right? She's not better than you. But on that day, on that day, we have increased the value that we place on her. And we treat her different. We treat her different that day. 
You guys also would know how to do this. Just imagine your favorite celebrity was coming over to your house or your, your apartment for dinner one night. It was just going to be you and that person. What would you do? What would you do? How, just think about that. What would you do that night if you knew they were coming over? First of all, you'd probably clean up your apartment, clean up your house. You'd maybe cook something. And then when they showed up, what they showed up is you would make sure that their needs were met. You would make sure that they feel valued. You'd make sure that you were being hospitable towards them. Do you want something to drink? You sit down. Do you like this? Do you not like that? You would ask them questions about themselves. That's, that's what Paul's telling us to do here. Not because people are better than one another. Theologically, we are all the exact same value. We have an enormous amount of value as being created in the image of God. But what we do if we're humble, if we're humble, we just increase the value we place on others. We say, I'm going to treat you like you are better than me. And I'm going to put your interest above my own. I saw this last week, actually. I saw an amazing example of this with one of the fellows that's at Watermark, one of the guys doing the, uh, doing the fellowship. He's in the room now. I saw him last night. He doesn't know I'm sharing this. I won't embarrass him. Uh, but this one guy, he reached out to me, and he said, hey, do you want to go to lunch? And I said, sure, I'll go to lunch. And said he wanted to go to lunch and get my advice on a few things. And so we, the day came that we were going to go to lunch, and we were going to meet in the first floor lobby down there at the Watermark offices. So I get out of the elevator, and this gentleman was over there, and he was engaging the security guards. And he was talking to them, and he was asking them questions about their life, and he was making sure that he understood their names, and he was laughing with them. And then I came there, and he was like, all right, bye, I'll come back, and we'll make sure, you know, I'm going to follow up with you on that one thing. And then he and I, we start walking over to the car to drive to lunch, and he just engages me and starts going, you know, what were you doing today? Starts asking me questions about my life. We drive over to Chipotle. We get to the line. The person that's making our burrito bowls, he starts engaging with that person. How's your day going today? What's going on with you? The person that is taking our money, he starts engaging with that person. He offered to pay for the lunch, which I was like, bro, we're not paying you much, so I'll pay for lunch. <laughs> that's okay, but that's kind. We sit down. There were some other Watermark people in the restaurant already. They came over to say hi to us. He engaged them, introduced himself. The whole time at lunch, he's asking me questions. He's listening to me. We drive back. Two days later, he sends me a thank you email and lists out in the thank you email three or four things that I said that he loved that he's always going to remember. I mean, my wife never even did that, okay? <laughs> that was amazing. And you know what I think about that guy? That's a humble dude. That's a guy who believes what Paul is saying here. That's a guy who is increasing the value he placed on other people. You know what he did? He treated every single person he met that day the exact same way. If you want to be humble, that's the way we do it. Let me, let me just give you a really, really practical way that you can do this to increase the value you place on others. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start to live your life like a professional golfer. I want you to start to live your life, let's not even say professional, like a good golfer and the way they approach a putt. Watch this. Okay, so here, here's the way a golfer would approach a putt. So let's say I am the professional golfer and the hole is right over there. If you'll notice what a good golfer does when the hole is right over there and they're getting ready to putt, their ball is right here, they're going to putt it over there. And so what they do is they start, they start getting down on, on this level and they start looking at it this way. 
And what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out where the break is. And, you know, if they hit the ball this way, is it going to go that way? Is it going to go that way? Is it uphill or is it downhill? And they start looking at it. Sometimes they pick up their golf club and kind of do something weird with one eye. You know, Tiger Woods would kind of do this and all that kind of stuff. They would do that. And a good golfer or a pretty good golfer would just look at it from that perspective. But you know what the great golfers do? You know what the professional golfers do? They don't just look at it here. What they do is they walk to the other side of the hole. And they come over here and they start to look at it from over here. And they do the exact same thing. They get down and maybe they bring their caddy over and they're going, do you see that? And they're looking at it from this perspective. And the great ones, they may walk a complete circle around the hole. And the reason they do that is because they know if they only look at the situation from this perspective, they might miss something. But when they walk over to the other side and they start to look at the situation from another perspective, they may see a new angle and they may realize, oh, there's something that I'm missing. And so that is what we need to do in relationships. That is a really simple and practical way to increase the value you place on others. You want to know what you do? You start to look at life from somebody else's perspective. You start to look at life from somebody else's perspective. And here's what happens when you do that. You understand that your perspective is not always right something crazy happens you start to understand uh, your interpretation of situations it's not always reality your opinions are not always based in truth when you get over there on the other side and you start to look at life from their perspective it's humbling because you start to realize hey you know what they have a point they have a perspective Here, here's something crazy that I've learned in relationships when I get over there and look at relationships from somebody else's perspective, I realize that there's really nobody who's unreasonable. Everybody has a reason for the way they behave. And our goal, if we want to be humble and be in healthy relationships with one another, if we want to have the good life with that, we need to understand what are those reasons. Why are they acting that way? So the first point that Paul wants us to see in the path towards humility is one enemy. We view this life as one enemy. The second idea is increase the value that we place on others. And let's look at this third idea. Back into the text in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Jesus Christ. So that's basically what he's telling us to do. Hey, in the way you interact with other people, just act like Jesus. Have that same mindset that Jesus had in his relationships with one another. And so verse 6, now he goes on and he's got this really poetic language that he uses. And there's so much we can unpack here. But let's just read it and I want to pull out one little, one little principle. Who, being in the very nature of God, this is now talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that humility, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at, that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So this third idea that I want us to draw out of the text. This third way that we can move towards humility in our relationships is this idea of labor to serve. That we are to labor to serve. That's what Paul, one of the things he said about Jesus. 
He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And so our job, our job every day when we wake up is to labor to serve one another. And I'll tell you what, guys, that is so much easier said than done. That is so difficult to live out. And I finally figured out who we can blame. I've got a guy that we can blame. His name is Harry Selfridge. Anybody ever heard of Harry Selfridge? Anybody know that name? Got a picture of him up there? Yes, yeah, a couple of you guys. Harry Selfridge owns Selfridge Department Stores over in England. And in 1909, Selfridge Department Stores was starting to experience some decline in sales. And so he was a marketer and had a marketing mind. And he was trying to think of a way that he could drive customers back into his store. And so he came up with a phrase. He came up with a motto, and that motto started to infiltrate its way all throughout the stores, and that motto went into all the employees, and and when they started to adopt this motto, everything changed in that store. You know what the motto was? The customer is always right. Now, how many of y'all have ever been in customer service before? Is that a true statement? No, it's not true. That is a lie, okay? That is a lie that Mr. Selfridge came up with to get sales, to get people into the department store. And it worked. That's what's crazy is that it worked. And so all these other businesses, success starts to attract people. And all these other businesses are like, hey, what what are you doing? How are your sales increasing? And he's like, hey, I basically came up with this idea that the customer is always right. And people were like, great. And so here we are, 2017, it has made its way, that, that phrase has made its way around the globe, and it is still to this day this mantra that so many people believe. Now, it, for us as Americans, it has so infiltrated our culture, it's actually become something that we not only believe when we walk into certain business establishments, I think a lot of us just believe this about life, that we are customers in life. And that if something doesn't go our way, there's a manager that we could talk to to try to remedy this situation. And so for so many of us, what we're trying to do is we think the good life is going to be found when we're at the center of it. And we can have this orbit of servants around us. We think the good life is going to be found when people are laboring to serve us. And if we do that, that's pride. And what Paul is telling us here is that no, 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 no. Labor to serve others. That was the life of Jesus. That's to be our life. That every day, every day when we wake up, our job is to labor to serve other people. And let me just be clear on this. This doesn't mean that you need to clean your roommate's bathroom or you need to run their errands for them. It doesn't mean that you need to pay their rent for them. I mean, there may be times where that's how you can serve. Here's what this means. It means everywhere you go, every single day, your job is to bring the peace of God into that situation. Every meeting that you're in, every conversation that you have, wherever you go, when you walk away, just go, did I bring God's peace into that situation? Did I make that conversation better? Did I bless those people? Did I serve those people? Wherever you are, when you're in line at Chipotle or you're talking to security guards or you're talking to somebody in your organization or you're talking to your friends or your family, your job to serve them is to increase the value you place on them and consider their interests above your own. Listen to this. Our desire to be served, our desire to be served is really a desire to be worshipped. That's what it is. And Paul makes it very clear. That is reserved for Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that was exalted to the highest place. He's the one that was been given the name above every name. He's the one that every knee is going to bow to him one day. 
And so we are to emulate his life, not try to replace ourselves in life or replace him in life. And so if we want to move towards humility, if we want to move towards humility, here's what we need to do. We need to remember that there's one enemy. We need to increase the value we place on others and labor to serve. O-I-L. Just like your car needs oil to function properly, our relationships need oil. And that oil is humility. So let me close with this last story and one last thought. So my, I've got two boys. I've got a third grader and a first grader, and I've been coaching their baseball team. And this past spring, our baseball season was getting ready to start, and I was really excited about this season. The, <clears throat> the boys had been playing together three or four seasons. They were starting to get a lot better. We had a couple new kids that were playing on the team that – had some athletic ability that I was like, okay, we're, we're, adding, we're adding talent to the roster. This is awesome. And so we were really excited about this baseball season. And I started entertaining thoughts of maybe we'll have a winning record or maybe we might be one of the best teams in the league this year. And so we were having practices that were going well. Everybody was hitting well. They were getting better at the fielding. And then the first game shows up. And the first game, it should be a five-inning game. It ended after three innings. Because we lost 15 to 3. We were run ruled. Thought, all right, maybe that was a fluke. We'll just treat that like spring training. Maybe the real season's gonna start the next next game. Next game shows up, we lose 16 to 3. All right, that's just two. We got eight more games. We still have a winning record. Third game, we lose 11 to 7. I don't think we completed a full five innings in any of the games because we were getting run ruled. So here we are, we're, we're three games into this season, and I had such high hopes, and we're 0-3, and we quickly realized that we are one of the worst teams in the league. And you know what we felt? We felt humbled. That's what we felt. And the reason we felt humbled is because we had been around something that was greater than us. We had been around teams that were better than us. And so we saw this principle that's out there that I want to leave you with, this last idea, this last thought as it relates to this, is that you cannot make yourself humble. I want to make sure you hear that. What Paul is telling us to do here this morning, he's not saying, hey, go and make yourself humble. He's saying, uh, move towards humility, but understand you cannot make yourself humble. You can only be made humble. And you are made humble when you are around something or someone that is greater than you, that produces humility. We were around those greater teams than us, we were humble. So the to-do this weekend for all of these messages, the to-do for the good life, is just go be with God. Go be with Him. Every day, wake up and pursue Him. Walk humbly with Him, as the prophet Micah would tell us. Be with him, because if you are with him, you are around someone that is infinitely greater than you. And when you're around that greatness, it humbles you, and you then can move towards others. You remember there's one enemy. It's easier to place value on other people, and you remember that your job is to labor to serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your truth.
We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our life. And Lord, I pray that you will continue to humble us as we spend time with you. God, we want to repent of this desire to be worshipped. We want to repent of not placing value on other people. We want to repent of this list of enemies that we have and thinking that people don't deserve a relationship with us. So God, as we spend time with you, we pray that you will warm up our cold hearts. And may we see people like you. And may we seek to live the life like Jesus lived, who didn't use any power to his advantage, but served others. That's our prayer. That's what we ask. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.